different locations and different, um, just different ways, Lord. Thank you for our friendships, God. And I pray, that, Lord, that you continue to draw people who don't know you to yourself. And, Lord, that you'd speak through us. God, I pray that even now as I open your word, that you would um, uh, give me power here in this pulpit, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that uh, you would reach our hearts wherever we're at. And that, God, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you want us to hear and see. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'll be preaching from John chapter 20, which is page 907 in the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that one and take it home with you. Before we get into God's Word, um, when I was a kid, we would take family vacations every single summer. That was just a standard thing that I grew up with. Um, I remember my dad saying, I work hard all year, and we're taking a vacation. And that's kind of what was the standard of my expectations. And what we normally did was, we'd go out to Wisconsin Dells. Any Wisconsin Dells fans out there? If you haven't been, been there since the 80s, don't worry, it hasn't changed. <laughs> so now I'm going back, I'm like, like, couldn't you guys do something different? Um, if anything, they build new hotels with water parks inside the hotel. That's about it. So I remember as a kid growing there, Noah's Ark Water Park. That was a biggie. Um, miniature golf everywhere, like Pirate's Cove. Um, maybe it's the wax museum with different wax figurines or the duck rides in those, those large boat kind of vehicles that would drive on the streets and go in the water. But I remember one particular place always got my attention as we walked past it, and that was the Ripley's Believe It or Not building. That's the weirdest place. Robert Ripley was a cartoonist uh, he was a world traveler, and he was a radio host as well. He loved to bring up random facts and tell people, hey, believe it or not, such and such happened. Or bring up random artifacts. Hey, believe it or not, but look what I found. He was a world traveler and made his first world tour in 1922. And when he came back, he came back with different kinds of pictures. He came back with artifacts and stories. And what he did was he mastered the art of publicizing these oddities in such a way that it sparked people's interest. He created what are known as auditoriums, which is rooms filled with things that were just odd. Like a picture of the one-eyed lamb, the cyclops lamb as he called it. Or the elongated Peruvian skull. It was a person's skull that was shaped literally like an egg. Or maybe it's the images of tribal peoples in most remote places. Or a nine-foot man with someone standing next to him who's like six feet tall and seeing him uh, sky above him. Or maybe it's the shrunken head pictures. I remember seeing those things like, this is creepy. There's little heads like there, like, but full-grown heads, like full-grown humans, but little heads. Weird. Um, different pictures and artifacts. And basically what, what Ripley wanted to do was bringing these things before you and say, hey, believe it or not, look what I found. And as he would tell you these stories, you had this idea in your mind, if you're like me, it's kind of like, yeah, right, you saw, you saw that. Yeah, right, that's true. Like, it's the kind of things where you hear random facts and you wonder, is that real? Like, does Sinbad really play in Shazam a genie? Y'all don't know about that, check it out. He didn't. So Ripley collected some 25,000 artifacts and has them displayed. What, what Ripley understood was this. 
You can make outrageous statements and people won't believe you because people end up being like this. They're like, show me. You say you saw that? Show me. You say you found that? I want to see it. And so what Ripley did was present the evidence, the people, to persuade them of something that they themselves had a hard time believing. He provided what was called just what, what is like evidence that Josh McDowell likes to say, evidence that demands a verdict. When it comes to the Christian life, it's not much different than what we find with Robert Ripley. Because when we say, hey, Christianity is this belief, this way of life, this thing that God has done, founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, many people are like, I don't believe it, show me. And sometimes even when you maybe talk about your Christian faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, you might feel like Ripley saying, hey, believe it or not, this is what I stand on. Believe it or not, this is the word of God. Believe it or not, Jesus is alive. Believe it or not, he was born of a virgin. Believe it or not, God created this earth. And we go on and on and on, believe it or not. And there are some who will say, cool, I believe it. And others can kind of like, no, I don't believe it. Show me. They want proof. And, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we've all been in places in our lives where we've said, hey, God, I could use some more proof right now. I, I could use some more evidence. Maybe you find yourself at different times, even now perhaps, struggling with doubt. Doubt about Christianity, doubt about your faith, doubt about God. And as I was thinking about this, there are varieties of ways that we doubt, that we have this kind of show me thing, or this kind of like, God, I need more evidence. God, I need, I need help here to believe, because this gap between belief and where I'm at is pretty huge. Sometimes we doubt our own salvation if we're, if we're Christians. Like, did God really save me? Is, am I legitimately a child of God? And maybe that stems from your own spiritual battles. Maybe you find yourself falling back into sins, into old ways. You're like, God, am, am I really a new person? Because I don't feel like it. Maybe you're doubting Christianity as a whole. Maybe you are a child of God. You're like, but I'm having a hard time doubting the authenticity of these various things that I once claimed to believe in. Or maybe I just assumed but never tested them. And you're battling doubt with that. Or maybe you're on the opposite side where you're like, hey, I'm not a Christian and I don't believe in Christianity. I'm here because I'm interested. Uh, I got some things that are triggering some thoughts, but I have a hard time believing in a God to begin with. Or maybe you say, I believe that there is a higher power, but I have a hard time believing Christianity is the only way to that God. I have a hard time believing that the Bible is inspired by God. I have a hard time believing that Jesus was perfect, that he walked, that he lived, that he died and rose again. And so because of my doubts, I'm going to refrain from Christianity. Look, we've all got different doubts here. And I think a lot of us sometimes feel that we can't voice those doubts because we feel like then we're a phony or we're a fake. And what I love is Jesus tells us, and I've mentioned this before, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, what? Mind. How do you love God with your mind? Well, how do you use your mind at school? You learn and you ask questions. See, loving God with all our mind demands that we say, God, is this really your word? To love God with all our mind demands saying, Jesus, did you really raise from the dead? Like, like asking questions is not a problem. 
I remember this time when a guy came to my office and it was just wrestling with the faith. And he said, I got questions. And he didn't want to state it, but as our conversation unfolded, I knew what he meant. And, and I just basically said, hey, are you wondering why we believe this and not the Quran? He's like, yeah. Why, 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 don't, why don't we? Why, why is there we're not valid, you know, valued as the Bible is in our eyes? No, we got to ask questions. But there is also an understanding that we have to have is that in the questions, there is a spiritual warfare taking place. In fact, one of the first, perhaps even the first question stated in the Bible is, did God really say you shall not eat of that tree? It is a question given by Satan to put doubt in the mind of Adam and Eve. And so what we need to do is understand questions are good. We've got to ask them. Please ask them. But also, as you ask them, know that there is a battle for your soul taking place. And there is one who wants those questions to turn into doubt and doubt to turn into straying away. But there's also one who says, hey, through those questions, I want to fortify your faith and you to find that I'm a refuge that you can trust. So today we want to come here into God's word and say, Lord, show us today. God, God, show me why I believe what I believe. Show me why the Bible says what it says is true. And what the Bible does time and again, it provides for us examples of people who go through the very things we're going through. Today we're going to look at someone who doubted. Doubted in the deepest of ways and stood in the darkest of valleys because of their doubt. You ever been in a dark valley because of doubt, fam? Yeah, I think you're going to find encouragement as we learn from John chapter 20. Would you meet me there? John chapter 20, verse 19. I'm going to read verses 19 through 29. Um, If you're able to, would you please stand with me yet one more time as we read the scriptures? If you don't have a Bible, as I mentioned, join me on page 907 in that blue Bible in front of you. John uh, John 20, verse 19 says this. On the evening of that day... That day referring to the day that Jesus rose from the dead. This passage takes place uh, initially on the very first Easter Sunday. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We can get a sense of their joy. They saw him dead, and now they see him alive. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. And when he had said this to them, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Let that sink in. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see, can you say unless I see? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here 
and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him. Can we read that part together? My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thomas. Man, I'm thankful for this man. Thomas gets a nickname. You guys know what Thomas's nickname is? Doubting Thomas. How messed up is that? Like, like that's his legacy. I think it's super unfair, actually, because we're basing Thomas's nickname on one occurrence that we can't blame him for. I mean, imagine what this brother just went through. If we read the book of John, we find in John 11, verse 16, that Thomas was the one who told Jesus, when Jesus said, hey, we need to go and visit Lazarus, and, and all the disciples were like, Jesus, we just ran away from there. They're about to kill you. He's like, I need to go to Lazarus. And Thomas says, very well then, let us go and we will also die with you. That's Thomas. Not courageous Thomas, doubting Thomas. Fast forward to John 14 when Jesus is in his upper room with his disciples. He's about to tell them, hey, I'm about to die. I'm about to leave you guys. And, uh, and, and I'm about to go on my way. But where I'm going, you can join me. And it's Thomas who's like, Jesus, how can we join you? We don't know where the way to where you're going. Hey, that's a pretty honest brother. Not good questioning Thomas. He's doubting Thomas. Jesus, by the way, replies to him and says, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then we come here to John 20, and we see another picture of Thomas. See, we got to understand something about Thomas. He wasn't just some passive observer of Christianity or Jesus himself. himself excuse me. Thomas wasn't some passive follower. Thomas was sold out, family. He was invested. Thomas was ready to die for Jesus. So as we come to look at this passage, let's take a look at what Thomas is like. Because as we see Thomas, we see a man who's truly saying, hey, I was ready to follow Jesus. But like everyone else found, he saw his Savior crucified on a cross. And so Thomas's world was turned upside down the day that Jesus was killed. And then we see on ver- in verse 19 that on that Sunday evening, Jesus appears to his disciples. And then in verse 24, we have this crazy statement. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. I mean, talk about disappointing. Of all the times for Thomas to go down the street to get a cup of coffee, of all the times for him to go get groceries, or whatever he was doing, that's when Jesus shows up to his other friends. Imagine his disappointment when Thomas shows back up at the house and they're like, yo, you won't believe it. Guess who we saw? Jesus. It's crazy. Crazy to think what Thomas went through. And what Thomas responds then in verse 25 Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. See, for Thomas, we're understanding that he faced doubt now about the validity of Jesus' resurrection, ultimately about his entire worldview. 
Everything he had done for the last three years hinged on Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And now he's dead. And Thomas is like, and now you're trying to tell me he's alive? Like, like everybody in Jerusalem knows what happened. Everybody. Remember it turned pitch black at 3 p.m.? Do, do you remember the crowds? Do you remember those nails in his hand? Do you remember that spear in his side and blood and water? And you're trying to tell me he's alive now? And then Thomas is like, hey, I need evidence here. Not unlike many of us are stating, God, I need more here to believe. I, I, I need more here. See, for Thomas, deep hurt caused deep doubt. I think for a lot of us, we find ourselves in that place. Maybe the struggles in your own faith have to do with hurt, have to do with struggle, have to do with adversity you faced. So Tom's like, I'll never believe. And then he says, unless I see the nails in his hand, the nail marks in his hands. And then he ups the ante. And unless I touch those hands and touch his side, I'm like, that's getting a little gruesome now, isn't it? But think about it. Thomas is basically kind of like, I don't want a vision. I don't want to see a ghost. I don't want to hear stories. I don't want to just see something. I want to touch him. You tell me he's alive, I want to touch him. And man, when we're battling for our faith, we just want that tangibleness, don't we? Like, God, I, I want more than just, just a word. I want to, I wanna, I wanna, like, feel you here, God. And this is where Thomas is at, doubting Thomas. But again, we come to we're like, man, cut to do some slack, y'all. He's struggling. And man, we can't, we can't blame him. He says, unless this happens, I will never believe. That word never is a big word here because in the Greek, it's actually a double negative. It's a double negative. In the Greek language, a double negative is not, does not cancel each other out. Like if in English we said, I will never not believe, that means you will always believe. But in Greek, when he says, I will never not believe, it means I will absolutely not believe. Tom is like, don't give me some time here. I don't need time. Don't give me space. I don't need space. I'm telling you, until I see Jesus and touch him, I won't believe in him. And, you know, sometimes that's how it is for us. Like, I don't just need space right now. I need evidence. I need something tangible. And some of you are thinking right, like, right now, like, man, Pastor, you're really building this up. Like, unless Jesus is about to walk in this room, how are you going to land this plane? We're going to get there. He's not going to walk in the room. Not literally, at least. But he's here. Thomas is just struggling here. He wants a beyond the shadow of a doubt evidence. You know that show, Deal or No Deal, with Howie Mandel? Thomas is looking at Howie, and he's like, no deal. He's like, I need more. It's like you, when you hear about aliens, you're like, I need more than just cornfield to believe in aliens. I need more than a snapshot of Bigfoot to believe in Bigfoot. I need more than ESPN to tell me that LeBron's the greatest ever. I need, I need more evidence. I don't, there's not enough evidence out there. No deal. I ain't taking it. All right? This is where Thomas is at, family. This is where you and I are at. Let's be honest here. A lot of times we're struggling, and we want to know, God, I, just, I need more here. 
And so the questions we ask are good questions. And we got to come to God then for the answers. It's remarkable. It says that Thomas in verse 24 is a twin. We're never told who his twin sibling is, but as someone once said, it might as well be me and you. Could we find ourselves in the same boat as him? Unsure, sometimes doubting. And we know we can't really judge Thomas. But it's crazy is Jesus doesn't just show up right behind him and tap him on his shoulder. That's what we want, isn't it? When we're struggling like that, all we want is like a, hey, I'm right here. Here, touch, right? Look at what it says in the next verse here. Look what it says in verse 26. Look at those first three words. Eight days later. The way the Jews counted on their days of the week, they counted the day of. So eight days later is literally a week later. It is a week after Easter. Just like we're standing and sitting here a week after Easter. A full week has gone by. I'm just wondering, what were the disciples talking about? Like, man, when we saw Jesus, da-da-da-da-da. And Thomas is just there in the back of the room like this. Did he ever speak up? Or did he keep it to himself? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But if I'm there, maybe I would have kept to myself and just grown resentment. Like, you're kidding me. I'm not trying to believe this. Or like, I wish I could, but I just can't. I, can't, I just can't go there right now. Eight days later. Like, why did it take Jesus eight days later to show up? Was he just too busy doing other resurrection appearances to other people? Was it that he had too many things on his plate? And we know that's not the case. Why doesn't God show up sometimes in the moment we feel like we need him the most? At least not in the way we want him the most. Because this is true here, and I want you to understand this, fam. There is such a thing as a necessary valley. You hear me? There is such a thing as a necessary valley in life. There is such a thing as a necessary struggle because it's in that place what is truly in our hearts comes to the surface. And there are few things that can expose our belief and worldview like struggle. We can believe anything if life is good. But what do you believe when life is rough? When where you had your hope is now starting to feel a little shaky. See, Thomas is there, and Jesus is like, I need you there for a moment, Thomas. I won't keep you there forever, but I need you there for a time. Because I need you to see what's in your heart so that I could get to that place. And some of you feel like you're in that valley right now, and maybe as you're standing in that place, you're saying, God, where are you at? What's going on? And what's happening is you're searching yourself. And you're saying, what do I really believe here? Why do I really believe this? Perhaps I was raised in the church, and I never even had an opportunity to doubt God from a worldview perspective. But now I'm just standing. I'm not, I, I just don't know. I, I never had that space. So I feel like I'm in that space now. I'm just, God, are you real? Is the Bible real? Is the resurrection real? Or maybe you're in that space, you're like, this has been my life. It's never been easy. And now you want me to trust God? See, what God is doing, though, in those valleys is saying, hey, I'm about to move here, but you need to, you need to see what's going on in your heart. And that's where Thomas is at. It's like metal being refined by the fire, and that fire is hot. But it's also refining. And what God's about to do is mold Thomas. 
It's like Jesus saying, Thomas, I see you there. I see you there. I see your doubt. I see your struggle. I just need you to learn to trust me when things are difficult in this valley. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. But notice here, family, the doors weren't the only thing locked at that moment. Thomas's heart was locked, padlocked, sealed. And maybe you're here today, and you're like, man, I'm feeling like my heart is locked up. Like even now, I'm feeling like God's trying to rip it apart, and you're fighting against it because you're like, man, it's too much I've gone through. There's too much doubt. There's too much pain. There's too much struggle here. God, I, I don't want to let you in. And God's like, no, I'm here. I'm coming in because notice what Jesus does. A locked door doesn't keep him out. You can lock God out of your life, but when he wants to come in, Jesus is going to come in. And what he does when he comes in is he shows up. And look what he does. He says, although, it says, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. He's like, shalom, everybody. And no doubt they needed peace be with them. Sure, it's a, a regular greeting, but also he just showed up in their house without coming through the door. That would scare you enough. And Jesus is like, peace be with you. But then look what Jesus does. He says, then he said to Thomas. He didn't say it to the group. He didn't speak out loud. He directed his statement to the man who was doubting. God is doing this for us, fam. Because as we're standing here, as we're sitting here, God is speaking to you through this pulpit, not through, and it's not Eric Rivera, it's God who's saying, hey, I'm coming in, and I'm going to direct this word to you right now, to you and your doubt, to you and your fear, to you and your pain, to you and whatever you're going through. I'm going to direct this word to you, and look what Jesus tells him. He says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. And then this is what Jesus tells us. This is what he told Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, as we come to the scripture here, this wasn't a, a vision. This wasn't a ghost. This was not a hallucination because Thomas had the opportunity to do the very thing that you and I long for is to touch in the most tangible of ways. What Jesus does is lay out the evidence that Thomas needed. And he tells him, don't disbelieve. Some of us are thinking like, man, but if Jesus showed up in my house and said that, I would believe as well. But this is the beauty of the Christian faith. God never calls you and I to step into blind faith, fam. Christianity is not a blind faith way of life. I like to say it's an informed faith. It's faith nonetheless, but it ain't blind. It's not like there's no evidence to support our faith. It's not like there's, there's no detail, there's no facts out there that support faith. There are facts, but facts still demand faith. We can lay out the facts, but if you choose to refuse and push them away, then you'll stay keeping God at arm's length. You keep with that thing locked up. But these are the facts. That although Jesus won't walk into this room physically and let us touch his hands, let's take a look at the resurrection. Where's the tomb, fam? What's in the tomb, fam? As rapper KB says, they went, looked in the tomb, and they found nobody. He says, get it? They found no body, right? There's nobody. There's no body in the, true, in the tomb. There's nothing there. And so the way it goes on, and I shared this last Sunday, but it bears repeating, where is the body? 
Where's the body? And the truth is, it's resurrected. Some have charged the disciples of stealing the body. But in order to steal the body, they had to fight off soldiers, armed soldiers, trained soldiers. And then they had to roll the stone without anybody knowing after those soldiers they fought off. And then they had to take the body and hide it somewhere. And then they had to all agree to this secret. And they had to all agree to the secret to the point of death because 10 of the 11 apostles died for their very faith. And the one that didn't die for his faith was considered a martyr by the early church because he suffered so much for his faith. Eleven people keeping a secret like that to the death now. No, that's not going to happen. Some say, well, maybe those who claim to see Jesus, they were just hallucinating, kind of like that Bigfoot syndrome. As the scripture was read for us earlier today by our brother Abel, Paul's like, look, He appeared to more than 500 at one time. And then Paul adds, most of whom are still alive, which is like, hey, go ask them. And perhaps one of the most convincing of evidences, and I love sharing this with you guys, I've done it before, is he says that he appeared to James. See, in the Bible, there's a book of the Bible named James. Who is this James? As we we enter into the text and study who the different Jameses in our Bible, we come to realize that's that's Jesus' brother. Now get this, in Jesus' own lifetime, his brother didn't believe in him. His family did not believe in him. That's what the Gospels tell us. So how does James, who does not believe in his brother, come to believe in his brother after his brother dies? Well, there's nothing like seeing your brother come back from the dead to give you faith. And so, although we don't have this tangible, physical Jesus in front of us, this is tangible evidence. Throughout those first few years after the resurrection, all that the religious leaders needed to do was one thing to disprove Christianity, and that was to provide a body. And it never happened. And so what Jesus is here telling us, as he told Thomas, is do not disbelieve But believe, believe, believe when the doubt arises. Believe why, uh, ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? With the resurrection, there is tantamount evidence. There is extreme evidence. I shared with you guys before the story of Lee Strobel, the man who was a Yale-trained lawyer, an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he was an atheist. And his world was rocked when his wife became a Christian. And for a year and nine months, he set out to investigate the claims of Christianity in order to disprove Christianity. He says, I have skepticism woven into my DNA. And my knee-jerk reaction to Christianity was that it was ridiculous and not worth checking out. The idea was absurd. As I studied more in the area of atheism, I became more cemented in that view. But when my wife became a Christian and I saw positive changes in her, I decided to use my legal and journalism background to investigate it. Like one of those clown punching bags, I felt like every time I would hit Christianity with an objection, it would bounce back up. And then he says, on November 8th, 1981, I had gone to church with with his wife Leslie that day. I can't remember anything that was said. This is one of the most hardest things being a preacher, by the way. Ain't nobody remember what you said. We trust that God does it. All right. 
He said, I can't remember anything that was said. I go, Lord, really? He says, but I came home, and I just felt like after a year and nine months of looking at the evidence from science and history, and especially the resurrection, that I needed to reach a verdict. He said, as I wrote page after page of evidence on my yellow legal pad, I just put down my pen and said, wait a second. It's going to take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because the evidence I believed was that strong. So that's when I concluded the resurrection was true. I read John 1.12, which says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. I didn't just believe it, but I repented of my sin and received his free gift of forgiveness and eternal life and became a child of God, and my life began to change. You see, facts always still require faith. And now it's time for Thomas to respond. Jesus shows up, and he's got a choice to make, the same choice you and I have to make when we're struggling in those moments of doubt. When it's whatever the hurt is, whatever the struggle is, we've got a a choice to make here. And Thomas in verse 28 says, My Lord and my God. This is not an OMG moment. He's not just saying, Oh my God, out in the middle of nowhere to the air. First of all, first century Jews didn't do that. That would be kind of taking the Lord's name in vain. Because, but, but even more important, look what it says. He said to who, my Lord and my God? What does it say there in the text? It says, he said to him, to the one who is in front of him, my Lord and my God. Thomas is not making an OMG moment. He's making a declaration of faith. He says, I've been standing at the crossroads these last eight days. I've been in the valley of despair, doubting my faith. And now God has shown himself to me to be real. He has encountered me in my mess. And now my choice is this, my Lord and my God. The Jews would say this every day, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is one. There's no other God, it says. The Lord your God is one. And now Thomas is saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God? That's a big statement, family. He's saying, you are Yahweh, Jesus. You were there at the burning bush, Jesus. You were there guiding the prophets of old. You have been around. You will always be. And in a beautiful way, the book of John has this bookend statement. Because here at the end, has a declaration that Jesus is God. And what does this book open up with? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is God's Word. See, what John is trying to say from the beginning of his gospel to the end is like, look, Jesus ain't no ordinary person. Jesus did things only God could do, and no evidence is there to say otherwise. Healing people, calming storms, feeding thousands with only a few loaves of bread and fish. Not only did Jesus do these things to demonstrate he is Lord and God, but Jesus himself claimed to be. Someone had tried to have a little Facebook debate with me this past week, which, by the way, I don't like doing, so I just kind of left it as is because it's like, you're not trying to be persuaded. You're just trying to argue with me. When someone tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, you know that they've not read their Bible. And he says, he told to me, he's like, you must not read your Bible. And no, I, I do quite, quite a bit, actually. 
Because what Jesus did was this. He looks at the religious leaders like, you are just like your father, the devil, who was a liar and a thief in the beginning and a murderer. Jesus didn't mince words at all. And they're mad at him like, oh, you know, get mad at him. Like, you know what? Jesus says, Father Abraham longed to see my day. And then he saw it and was glad. And they're like, Father Abraham? I mean, from the book of Genesis, who lived a few thousand years, Father Abraham? They said, you're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. He said, I'm God. I am that I am, the self-existent one. No beginning, no ending. Jesus like, I'm God. I'm claiming to be God. Uh, there, there, there's, no, there's no question here about my identity. I know who I am, and I'm telling you this. And so now Thomas is finally coming to understand what Jesus has been demonstrating and teaching for the last three years. And Thomas now, with the evidence in front of him, says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, don't say that to me. Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, man, I'm just a man like you. Now, what does Jesus tell him? Have you believed that I am Lord and God because you've seen me? But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's that family? That's us. Our God is good. See, what Jesus has done here, he says, hey man, I know my followers will doubt in years to come. I I know they're going to struggle at different times with their faith. But I need them to understand something extremely important is that I'm alive, and blessed are those who believe without seeing. I don't know what doubt you're struggling with today, but I need you to know Jesus is alive. And if he is alive, then he is Lord, and he is God, and he calls you to trust him in your struggle. I want to land the plane with this thought. If you are here and you're struggling whether or not you're still a child of God, Maybe you once believed and God changed you and now you're, you're saying, am I truly a Christian? This is a topic that I've spent many years studying and writing on, the assurance of our salvation. I firmly believe that when you are a child of God, you will always be a child of God. Romans 8 speaks of what the Puritans call the golden chain. It says that whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And if he predestined you, then he also called you. And if he called you, he also justified you. And he declared you right before God. And if he did that to you, he's also glorified you. Gl- glorified, you hear that? Romans 8, he has also glorified you. It is, uh, it is put in a tense as a completed action in the original Greek. So if you have been foreknown or predestined by God, you've also been glorified, although you're not yet fully glorified. God's basically like, hey, look, I got a chain here. And if one link is true, they're all true. And that first link has nothing to do with you. That first link has everything to do with me. I foreknew you. I predestined you. I did it all so I can't lose you because I'm God. And my grip is tight. And my chain is strong. If you buy a product, you got to register that product, family, in order to get the warranty of that product. Maybe it's a phone or a TV. And with the way you demonstrate to the company 
that that product belongs to you is that you need to give them a proof of purchase. You need to show a receipt that you got this item from one thing and its ownership is transferred from that store to you. And when you show forward the receipt, that is your proof of purchase. And as that proof of purchase is displayed, all the benefits of registering that product is yours. You get a warranty. That product is in your name. That product belongs to you. And it is known to be such. Family, you got to understand something about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' nail-pierced hands are not just proof of the resurrection. They're also the proof of your purchase, family. If you put your faith in Jesus, you need evidence for your salvation. You need proof of your purchase. Well, look to the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. It is that proof. And because of that proof of purchase, there is a guarantee attached to it. And that guarantee is heaven. And that heaven is yours, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the one. Although he's got holes in his hands, he won't drop you. Jesus is the one that's got a grip that will never fail you. And the proof of your salvation is found in the resurrection of Jesus. He is still encountering people. He is still saving people. He is still showing up in your hearts, though your heart might be locked. He is still revealing himself to you. And all of the evidence, all of the evidence points to that being true. One of the greatest defenses of the Christian faith is that Christianity has its enemies. And for 2,000 years, those enemies have sought to disprove this word and these truths. And here we are in 2019 proclaiming it because there has been no evidence, none, to overthrow the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. There is proof of your purchase and of the resurrection. In the same way, if that's true, it goes down the line, family. So you could tell someone, hey, believe it or not, this is true. The evidence is before us. Fact demands faith. And when you place your faith in Jesus, he is like a wide receiver in football with those stick'em gloves. He will bring you to himself. And our God, don't fumble. You don't fumble. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for my brothers and sisters today who um, are just fighting God to believe you, to trust you. And Lord, um, all of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. And Lord Jesus, we believe. For that brother and that sister who is just needing to hear this today, I pray, Lord, that you would cause in their mind that trickle-down effect, Lord, that if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is true. And if Jesus is true, then he is the word who made, who's made flesh. And if that's true, then your word, the Bible, is true and everything in it. And God, I pray you give them an unshakable confidence in you. For that man or woman, that youth who's here today, Lord, who is hearing the compelling truths of Christianity, Lord, I pray that fact would produce faith and that they would trust you, Lord, maybe surrender themselves to you for the first time. My God, would you do this for your name's sake? And the Lord, we, though we're like Thomas so often, 
doubting in our valleys. I pray that like Thomas, when we see your beauty, we might declare, my Lord, my God, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.